Good morning, neighbors. It's another beautiful day in the Faith Bible neighborhood. Those kind of words, they sound familiar, don't they? Many, if not most of us here, grew up in an era when, uh, of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Each and every day we saw Mr. Rogers come through his front door singing, Won't You Be My Neighbor? He'd take off his jacket, put on his red sweater, he'd slip off his work shoes and tie up his, his sneakers. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a show that ran for 31 seasons from February 1968 to August, end of August 2001. Each and every day, Fred Rogers would welcome us into his neighborhood and into his home. Mr. Rogers showed up during a time when the country was divided, much like today, and it ran right up until the attack on the World Trade Towers, such a defining moment for our country. Throughout the lifetime of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the world experienced great struggle new joys, and dynamic changes to our culture and our country. But Mr. Rogers was there, a light, a steady beacon to give advice and counsel to the families that would tune in and walk through his door every single day. Mr. Rogers was bold, too. Uh, he was not against talking about tough topics because he thought that, that kids were smart enough and deserved a show that spoke to them like the important people that they are. In fact, in 1969, when many pools were still segregated by white and black, Mr. Rogers aired an episode where he splashed his feet in a kiddie pool on his porch, and a black police officer comes over, and Mr. Rogers invites his friend to join him to soak in the pool. Officer Clemens initially declines, saying that he doesn't have a towel, but Mr. Rogers pipes up and says, here, come and share mine. While the world was looking to divide, Mr. Rogers was looking to unite. Now, Fred Rogers, he was a believer in Jesus. Many people know that. And many of his projects and his show episodes were based on core tenets of his faith. But he never felt the need to speak, about a re speak up about a religion on the air because he said you don't need to speak overtly about religion in order to get a message across. <clears throat> One of the things that Mr. Rogers did really well was allow his audience to ask questions. He himself modeled this by showing an interest in all of his guests and by asking them questions to better understand them and the lives that they lived. In fact, one of the most interesting parts of the show was when Mr. Rogers would take a trip around his neighborhood and invite his friends in to see how things were made or how something that was just perfectly normal, how it worked. One of my favorite adventures through his neighborhood was when he took families on a trip to see how the crayons were made. Great stuff. I think that if Fred Rogers were still alive today, he would, he would still be full of questions. Mr. Rogers thought questions were a wonderful thing. And I think his life was defined by asking questions. Now, when done right, questions take us outside of ourselves and give us permission to explore this, this great big world around us. Questions allow us to go deeper into an area of interest that we might have. Questions allow us to pursue a new study. Questions allow us to see different points of view and to even, if need be, prompt us to, to question and to change our own firmly held beliefs if they're wrong. Questions should take us outside of the world of judgment and into the world of understanding. And Mr. Rogers loved asking questions. He, he'd ask them every single show, and he'd invite you to ask them as well. You know someone else who likes to hear our questions? God. Most of us here probably realize that we aren't God, and so we don't know everything about God or, or about the world around us that, that he created. One of the ways we keep exploring and growing deeper in our relationship with God is to ask questions. Now, there are questions sprinkled all over the scriptures. In fact, Jesus himself asked many questions during his ministry life to, to pull, to push people in and out uh, of the circle here. 
someone went through a, and looked at the questions and figured out that Jesus asked about 307 of them. Not only did Jesus ask questions, but other people came to him with their questions. He was asked if he was a famous prophet from old. He was asked about the kingdom and when it was going to come. He was asked by a couple of bold disciples if they could have the places of prominence in his kingdom by sitting on his, his left and his right. But as you read the Bible, you know that some didn't come with genuine questions to figure out truth, but came with their questions in order to trap Jesus and discredit him. We know from the scriptures that the religious leaders of his day brought lots of questions to him, but their intent was not to hear or process through what he was going to tell them. Their intent was judgment and condemnation. Now, during the last week of his life, the religious leaders, they really brought out the big guns, trying to tear him down. During that famous week leading up to the cross, Jesus took, he took some time to go to the temple and throw out people who were setting up shop and tables that, that sold religious ritual items for, uh, for the, the festivals and the offerings. And they sold it at overinflated prices to, to the people who would come and, and would want to get something for, for an offering they would present. Now, selling goods to people for a sacrifice wasn't against the rules, but these folks had set up overpriced shops to cheat people and make a quick buck for themselves. I actually saw an example of something similar over in Nepal a couple of years ago. Our tour guide took, a, took our little group up to one of the most famous Hindu temples in the city and to give us a peek at uh, the religious practices of their country. While we were there, we were shown a famous fountain that you could throw coins in to have your prayers answered. It was really just a glorified wishing well. The kicker was that only a certain coin could be thrown into the well to, to have prayers answered. And the only place to get that coin was from a local vendor sitting by the fountain. It would cost you a couple bucks to purchase a coin with a value of about a penny. And this is the kind of practice that Jesus was throwing out of the temple. The Gospel of Mark says that the chief priests, the scribes, heard about this, what he was doing at the temple, and they started looking for ways to kill him. They were done. The Jesus movement had run its course, and they were ready for him to be driven out of town. But they couldn't just drive him out of town because one of his specialities was going into local towns and villages and drawing crowds. So they had to kill him. But in order to do that, they had to trap him and, and show that his teaching went against the law. And so they brought questions. They asked him, who had given him the authority to do what he was saying and do what he was doing? They asked him about paying taxes to try and trap him in, in contradictory statements about an allegiance to God versus allegiance to world powers. They asked him about marriage and what it was going to look like in heaven. And each of these questions was, came with a purpose and they were meant to trap Jesus and trip him up or, or give them some ammunition so that they could arrest him. And my favorite response of theirs in the book of Mark is, and they were utterly amazed at him. Let me, let me talk to the Jesus followers in the group for just a few seconds. I wish that we would hear more stories about the world being utterly amazed by Jesus. You might agree with me. You might be thinking that, yeah, I wish the world would look to Jesus more and be amazed by what they see. If they would just turn to Jesus, then all of these problems that we're experiencing, they would just start to go away. And you know what? You're kind of right. The world should be amazed by Jesus. But you also know what? They should be amazed by us because we are called the body of Christ. And when they see us, the church, they should be seeing Jesus. Well, well, the leaders of the day brought their questions and because Jesus was wise and he knew their hearts, he made quick work of them. 
And in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, we see a final question being asked. And after Jesus addresses this one particular question, the text is going to tell us that no one dared to question him any longer. Now, what kind of question and what kind of answer made the people who hated Jesus made them shut up? The answer to the question is so good and so powerful. It, it's, it's so simple, but yet so complex. The answer is so straightforward in its meaning, but it deserves to be meditated on each and every day. Jesus' answer to the question encompasses the mission of the church and is directive for his people, which makes it so important. It's so important that we need to sit on it for a couple of weeks ourselves. So for, for some of us, this might mean keeping our attention focused on Jesus' answer until we start to practice it in our daily lives. For some of us, this might mean that this is going to be the only passage of Scripture that we need to read until it really penetrates our hearts. What is the question? In order to find out, turn with me to, chart, to, to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. It says this. Mark, the author, says this. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them uh, debating and, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. So, here we have a scribe coming up to Jesus, and he, he puts this question before him. What is the greatest command? Well, Jesus' answer is so good and so comprehensive that it affects every relationship we have. It affects how we walk through our day. It affects how we see ourselves compared to how we see others, and so much more. The answer is so big, in fact, that it's going to take us a few weeks to, to start to unpack this. So, today, in order to start to, to, in order to get into the dialogue, we have to take a look at the man who is asking the question as well as how Jesus' answer begins to reshape our lives. Who was this man? Who is this man? Mark, the author, uh, the author of this gospel, says he's a scribe. Who here knows something about the scribes in Jesus' day? All right, not all of us. So let me give you a brief primer, a brief summary on this. In the gospel stories about Jesus, the scribes were a part of the group uh, known as the religious leaders. The text often speaks of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes or experts in the law. The scribes during that day were a class of scholars who taught, they copied, and they interpreted the laws, the Jewish laws, for the people. Uh, they would have been experts in the law. And sometimes the title of lawyer is given to them instead of the name scribe. We see this in the book of Luke. So, the scribes were a really important people group. Their, their official position could be dated back to the Babylonian exile, back in the Old Testament writings. Ezra himself was called a priest and a scribe. And they, they, they originally came into being because there was a need for people who could read and write and, and for them to act as secretaries in public life. So a scribe could be assigned to a ruler, 
uh, someone with authority. Uh, some scribes would keep track of legal matters. Some would keep track of military matters. Whenever something needed to be written or recorded, you would probably find a scribe nearby. Over time, their profession became more and more focused on interpreting the Torah, the foundation of the Jewish law. Uh, because they began to focus more and more on the Torah, they became known as experts in the law, and sometimes that's spelled out in, this, in the New Testament scriptures as well. So what happened over the years is that the profession of scribe, it, it started to get passed down through families. A father might be a scribe, and his son would pick up the business after him, and then his son, and so on and so on. And they were probably educated. Uh, most had money, but not all of them. Uh, and it was said that they would often wear fine, the finest garments. Uh, they, these guys had power, standing, prestige. Uh, they were looked up upon. They were looked up to. Basically, they were experts in the law of Moses, and they were there to instruct the people uh, in the law and answer questions about the law. So they preserved the law. They taught the law to groups of pupils who would follow after them, and they would make judgments based on the law. So they knew the law. It was said that they had like 613 individual commands of the law. 365 of these were negative, don't do this type of commands. 248 were positive, do this type of commands. And they would judge teachers based on what that teacher thought were the, the, the key commands. So it's no wonder that a scribe would come to Jesus, a teacher, and ask, what is the greatest command? Verse 28 tells us that this scribe approached because he heard the debate and saw that Jesus was answering them really well. Most of the scribes are shown uh, to be in a state of opposition to Jesus. They're against him with all the other religious, uh, religious rulers. But this man seems to come with a bit of an open mind, actually seeking this teacher's view on what are the key commands of the law. Most people agreed that this particular scribe was well on his way to becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not spelled out in the text. It doesn't say that in the text. But because of his approach and how he approached Jesus, as well as Jesus' final words to him in this particular dialogue, Jesus is going to say to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Okay, scribe, you want to know what is the greatest? Well, here it is. We, we find this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31. The most important is listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. The whole law falls under these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. There is nothing greater than these. What Jesus has done is pulled two portions of the Jewish scripture to highlight these commands. Uh, Jesus quotes uh, two passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he also quotes Leviticus <clears throat> excuse me, 19, verse 18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In order to give an, uh, an answer to this expert in the law, Jesus quotes part of the Shema. What is the Shema? The Shema is the most important prayer within the Jewish religion. Shema is recited twice a day. It was said that it should be like the first breath coming out of your mouth and the last breath before you closed your day, before you closed your eyes. It's so important, even up to today, that the story is told of a major in the uh, Israel Defense Forces, so Israel's army, modern day, I think this was 2006, he said the Shema before he jumped on a live grenade to save his fellow soldiers. They were the last words coming out of his mouth before he died. 
And the, the, the condensed prayer goes like this. The one they would recite during the morning and the night. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Other versions of the Shema would add a few other passages from the Jewish scriptures, but the basic prayer for the morning and night is the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, the, the, show, the, the full Shema, based on three particular passages of scriptures, would sound more like this. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. We, we've seen this one. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be on your hearts. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the city gates. Then from Deuteronomy 11:13 through 21, they would continue on like a, as a congregation. If you carefully obey my commands, I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and worship him with all your heart and with all your soul, I will provide rain for your land in the proper time. The autumn and the spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine, and fresh oil. I will provide grass in your fields for your livestock. You will eat and be satisfied. Be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside, serve and bow and, and worship to another god. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the sky and there will be no rain. The land will not produce its uh, fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. Imprint these words of mine on your hearts and your minds. Bind them as signs on your hands and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. And finally, they would quote, Numbers chapter 15, 37 through verse 41. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you uh, to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not prostitute yourselves by following your own heart and your own eyes. This way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. <clears throat> the reciting of the full Shema, the full prayer, it did a few things. It reaffirmed a personal relationship with God's rule. It was said that reciting the Shema was just as if you were receiving the kingdom of heaven. That's important to remember that. Built into the Shema was the acknowledgement of the kingship of God. There was a promise of reward for serving God with all one's heart, soul, and might. And the Shema is capped off with the issue of redemption as God's people. There's redemption for God's people. So at its most basic level, the Shema says this, God is king, there is blessing through serving, and there is redemption for his people. Now, this scribe would have been very faithful in saying his prayers and participating in the Shema. The daily prayer both in the morning and at night, the short prayer in the morning at night, and then he would also have been a faithful leader at home in leading his family through the Shema if he did indeed have a family. The, the longer prayers, if he had had pupils, the Shema would have been an important part of their ritual learning, reciting it with them as a group each and every day. So here we have Jesus taking the scribe uh, to something very familiar something that he would have had daily experience with, something he would have known by heart. And then Jesus says, and, 
You want to know what the greatest command is? Love our God, Shema, and include your neighbor in that love. There's nothing greater than these, these two commands. And Jesus puts them together as one. These two commands will encompass all of your life. They will define your whole life. The question we have to start to wrestle with today and over the next few weeks is this. Is our definition of neighbor big enough? Because if, if part of Jesus' command is to love our neighbor, we have to have an accurate picture of what that means and who they are. Now, Jesus always blows the doors open on what it means to follow the law. What had happened in Jesus' culture is that the definition of neighbor had, had gotten pretty small. Your neighbor who was, was someone who was close to you, who was like you, who, maybe their family, who agreed with you. Your neighbor was someone who was part of your tribe your social circle, your group. Even, the, even though the Jewish scriptures would speak to the inclusion of the foreigner and the outcast, the idea of being God's chosen people had gone to their heads, so to speak. We are God's chosen. We are set apart. And when the idea of privilege and power begins to be built into your culture, you then begin to forget those other communities, those other people. And the Jewish world was segregated between those who were in and those who were out. Now, most of us like what's familiar. We're comfortable with familiar. The most frequently uh, used response to to what's going on right now is something along the lines like like this. I can't wait for this to be over and for things to go back to normal. We want normal. And normal usually means what's comfortable or familiar to us. There are a few people out there that that really seem to thrive on out-of-the-box, spontaneous living. But I would bet that most of us, uh, we like normalcy. I bet we most of us go to a restaurant and we order similar things each and every time we go there. Or we have a, a small rotation of dishes that we like and, and that's what we order from. I bet we like our houses kept certain ways or we really enjoy certain activities with friends and family. Some of that's just fine. In the grand scheme of things, a lot of those little preferences, they don't make a world of difference, especially if they really don't affect other people. But Jesus's commands are big things. And, and it's it's not good to keep the big things in our small little boxes uh, of what we would consider normal. If we do that, we miss the opportunities and blessings sitting right in front of us. So here's confession time, my confession time. I struggle when it comes to a chaotic house. My wife doesn't. She doesn't have a problem with that. She goes with the flow. She jumps in on an adventure with the kids. If the house is a mess, who cares? You know, that kind of life. And my brain wants order and structure clean and tidy around the house. A life of chaos doesn't appeal to me. And you might be thinking you really shot yourself in the, the foot by having four kids. But again, it's, it's familiar because they're my kids. Now, around our circle of friends in our church, you know, we're known as one of the fostering families. You know, the ones that take kids in every once in a while and kids in need who need a place to stay. But I'll tell you what, my desire to have clean and structure and organized and a comfortable home, an orderly home, almost got in the way of us inviting other kids to our house. If you didn't know this, let me tell you, kids cause chaos. Not bad chaos well, sometimes, but, but more often than not, just chaos of disruption. For a long time, I struggled with the idea of disrupted meals, disrupted routines, disrupted schedules, nights, uh, be, you know, disrupted nights because unfamiliar kids equals messed up homes. And so God had to break some things. God had to open up my boxes of, of normal and comfort. If I wasn't willing to let God break apart a need for order and normalcy in our home, I wouldn't have let us get into the adventure of fostering. 
if I wouldn't have let us get into the adventure of fostering, we would have missed out on an opportunity to host some pretty awesome kids. If I had demanded to keep my world closed, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the opportunity to meet with some of our great resource workers in our area and hear more about the great needs in our community and then be invited to serve in those and, and also get involved in teaching and training. If I hadn't been able to meet with those workers, then I would never have gotten to know people and families from around our state who are looking for encouragement and support as they start their foster journeys. If I had let my own need for normal drive our decisions, then I would have missed out uh, on talking and answering questions from a little boy about what it means to be in God's family as his family has abandoned him and all he wanted was a place to belong. A desire for the familiar and the comfortable would have blown our chances for receiving a blessing by doing God's work. The commands of Jesus blow our borders and invite us into a bigger life than we can ever imagine. There's another scribe who came to Jesus and he asked a question about Jesus earlier in his ministry. His question was, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So do you see the connection again to the Shema, the Jewish prayer? Reciting the Shema was as if receiving the kingdom of God. And, and this is the question. This is, these are where the questions are directed of that day. Jesus says to him, what do you see in the law? And the scribe answers with the same answer Jesus gives to our scribe today. To love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. But the scribe goes further and he says, well, who is my neighbor? What this guy is trying to do is justify himself. Give him a little bit of wiggle room. What is the least amount I have to do to get into this kingdom life? Help my neighbor? Great, wait, wait, who are they? Well, again, are they people I know, the people I like, the easy neighbors who don't ask for much? But then Jesus goes into the famous Good Samaritan story. And Jesus reminds them that the law speaks to a bigger, grander, more inclusive definition of neighbor. Jesus redefines neighbors. Anyone who comes in, you come in contact with, it's no longer just about your people, it's about these people. This is why we have to sit on this command for a few weeks. This is why I asked if our definition of neighbor was big enough. If our neighbors are anyone who comes into our circle of influence, then there are so many implications, so many responses to what it means to, to love your neighbor, so many ways to, to play this out in life. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna take a look at some of the neighbors we might come in contact with during our day. Next week, we're going to start this journey. We're going to take a look at Jesus' first statement about loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, we have to have our priorities right. We have to have our focus right. The scribe tells Jesus, you're right. Verse 32 records the scribe's response and, and, and Jesus, to Jesus' answer. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, those are far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You have summed up the law very well, Jesus. The text says that no one dared to question him any longer. There is no other question to ask. Well, there are a lot of questions to ask during our lives. But when it comes down to what is the basic component for what our lives are supposed to look like, love God and love others. This will shape everything that we do. And the scribe says, Jesus, you have the answers. You have the answers. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from experiencing what it means to live a kingdom life. 
What you're looking for from the Shema, the kingdom of heaven, well, it's sitting right in front of you. And you have the opportunity to live it in the marketplace, to live it in your home, and to even live it on the road to the unknown places. Jesus has the answers. And what we're going to find out is Jesus is the answer, or we're going to be reminded of that. Are we brave enough to come to Jesus and say, tell me more about the greatest command? And are we brave enough to let the greatest command take us deeper into experiencing the kingdom of life that Jesus so frequently talks about? God, we come to you, and may we be a people who are seeking your kingdom. May we not be content by, by just sitting on the sidelines, experiencing what we consider normal, but Lord, may we open ourselves up to the grand experience of what it means to, to love our neighbor, to love God. Lord, give us wisdom over the next few weeks as we explore this passage and we explore a few others. Grant us wisdom as we study your word and what it means to love. And we come as a people who are desiring you, who are seeking you, and who want to to, to live in the, this kingdom life that you have you've given us access to. We come in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.